Hello everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, the show where it's our mission to make your space career take flight. We interview professionals from across the space sector to gain an insight into what they do and hopefully get some tips on how to join the industry. So, episode number 16. For this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Andrew Forney, who is the innovation lead working in business development at Astrosat in Edinburgh. He has experience in software delivery, the oil industry, media and hospitality. Andrew is a member of Space Scotland's Environmental Task Force and recently participated in the development of the Space Sustainability Roadmap. We spoke about his winding career path, using space data for social causes and travelling around the world for different Astrosat projects. I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did, but first of all, this week's 60 Second Space Briefing. This is your 60 Second Space Briefing for Saturday, 10th of December 2022. The UK's first space launch will have to wait. Virgin Orbit had said that the Start Me Up mission would be ready to go as early as December 14th. However, they announced on Thursday that it would be delayed quote for the coming weeks. According to the company, there are technical issues that need to be worked on, and it has yet to receive a launch license from the Civil Aviation Authority. Across the pond, SpaceX revealed a new service last week called Starshield. Although there are few technical details available, the company's website mentions that the aim is to leverage the Starlink constellation technology and launch capability to support national security efforts. The initial focus will be on three areas, Earth observation, communications and hosted payloads. An industry analyst quoted by Space News said, It appears they have finally understood that going all commercial and asking national security space customers to use it doesn't always work. Is it possible for satellites to catch a plane to space? According to New Zealand startup Dawn Aerospace, it is. The company just received $20 million to continue developing its space propulsion systems and Aurora Mark III orbital space plane. Up to date, its smaller Mark II vehicle has completed test flights using jet engines, but rocket-powered flights are expected to begin in the first quarter of 2023. Hello Andrew, thank you very much for coming on Preparing for Launch. Hello, thank you for having me over. Great. So can you tell us a bit about your company, Astrosat, and what you guys do? What are you guys up to? Uh, so Astrosat, we're an Earth observation company. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years. Um, and what we do is basically um, for every problem, there should be a space solution. That's what we believe. That's our motto. And we apply that. So any problem that a customer can give us, um, we'll try to figure out an angle to bring space in it. And that's, this is the part of the job that is the best, actually, is to find a problem that is really not straightforward space-related um, and then applying space to it. And so with that, we're not we're market sector agnostic. So we don't just focus on the environment or oil and gas or 
um, I don't know, construction, we do everything. We even do health stuff. So, so yeah, so we're pretty broad ranging and having that motto of uh, every problem has a space solution really applies, uh, applies us to all these different market sectors. Great. So I understand that you, I guess you, you purchase data or you acquire data from different sources and then package it up and sell it to, to customers. Is that more or less the basics of how Atosat works? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, we, we use the, the, um, the usual suspects, so Sentinel Suite. Um, we'll go and, and speak to, uh, well, we'll get Landsat data. Uh, we'll go and speak to JAXA. Um, and then we'll go to more and more the commercial providers, um, so Planet, ISI, and so on. Um, so, so yeah, we, the more, the more new players come in, the cheaper the data gets. So that means that's good for us, um, because if the data is cheap at the source or cheaper at the source, then the cost is lower for the customer. Um, and that's always a big, a big thing with our customers is as soon as you mention something about space, then they think it's expensive or complicated and so on. And uh, our job is to make it as simple as possible. For those who maybe aren't as experienced or, or, or know a lot about Earth observation, can you sort of shine a light on, I guess we've all seen the weather on TV, we think, okay, that's Earth observation, but maybe some of the more traditional areas of Earth observation, um, and then maybe some of, some of the more niche uh, applications that um, Astro is involved in? Yeah, sure. So um, what I call bread and butter Earth observation is, uh, I'd say, it's change detection. Um, there was something here. Uh, yesterday, today it's not here anymore. So that plays itself very well to things like deforestation, uh, which we did projects on. So illegal deforestation monitoring in the in Central America, we did that. Um, you get also uh, bread and butter. I'd consider also agriculture, uh, health monitoring of agriculture. Uh, that's not so much change detection. It is technically change detection because the health of the crops are, are different through through seasons. Um, but then something less traditional. Um, so some of my favorite things, and they're more socioeconomic driven. So I'll give you an example. During COVID-19 pandemic, we did a project to identify social isolation and the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic, to uh, people in Great Britain uh, who could suffer from um, the socioeconomic impact of illness. So less access to... Uh, public spaces and so on and in that we created a bunch of data sets uh, which you can find um, if you're a charity you can get access to to some of these uh, for free so just give us an email and, and we'll set you up um, but some of these include something like a transfer poverty index so we're using satellite data to identify where communities are more likely to be transport poor so less access to transport or uh, transport is not as frequent uh, or uh, you're not, uh, you can't afford transport in your area. So we fuse a lot of data, including satellite data. So we've got ground data and satellite data to do that. And uh, an aspect that I didn't know we could deal with until I was told by a customer that we could do it was when I was talking to an organization called Supporting Mind Scotland, who are a mental health charity. And they said to us, okay, with your transport poverty index, um, we can help people with transport anxiety, which is a mental health issue. And so I had to pause for a sec and pause the call because that <laughs> completely blew my mind. And I love that um, because we can we can say that we can help solve um, mental health issues with um, satellite data, which is pretty fucking insane. Sorry for swearing. 
And I think swearing for a good reason. That is, a, that is really interesting. Um, just, just to sort of narrow it down a bit more on the Earth observation. So from a technical side, um, are you using like just optical data? Um, I know you're fusing other types of data, not just uh, Earth observation, but is that the main uh, data type you're using? I know there's a lot of talk like lately about uh, SAR, for example. Yeah, um, so, and- so, so yeah, so we use, so optical is the, is the go-to. Um, everybody, when you say satellite imagery, they see a pretty picture of something. Um, yeah, that works. Um, you can get a lot of stuff from an optical image. I mean, if the, the and the talk is about more and more hyperspectral um, data being available. There's not that much at the moment. It's expensive, but there's going to be more and more, um, and that that's really interesting. But if you if you s- stick with optical, then you kind of miss a lot, um, and also sometimes it's cloudy, so you actually miss a lot because of the clouds. It's as simple as that. So SAR data, SAR. Um, and INSAR uh, is is really really great and powerful. Once once you know how to how to digest the data, process it, and and bring it back on on the ground, basically, you, you really get a lot from it. Uh, you, obviously, you go through the clouds, uh, and then you can see so much stuff. And I like SAR pretty a, a tiny bit more than optical uh, because of how pretty cool it is um, and you get really good imagery and really great resolution these days and i think it's a little bit cheaper than optical great so can you again going back to sort of astrostat projects um can you sort of give us examples where maybe you've used one type of data and uh, and a different one so where it very you've used optical or insert or and also can you just detail um sally what what we mean by hyperspectral data yeah so so um so Examples, so basically the work that we've been doing, say, with um, deforestation, we use optical data, we use Sentinel data for that, um, Sentinel-2, uh, in order to get some, some imagery. Um, and because Sentinel data is, is free, uh, it's great for proof of concepts and so on. So you don't, don't spend a lot of commercial, uh, a lot of money on commercial data, you can get more or less for free. So you prove your concepts with that to start with. So... Yeah, um, change detection is good with optical, but it's also great with SAR. So we use SAR for construction monitoring, for example, in cities, uh, because in cities uh, you get cloud cover, especially in the UK, uh, but also sometimes you get smog, and that's that really affects the the, the quality of the data. If you're doing work on um, tropical areas, so we did work in Uganda where we needed some SAR data in order to go through the smog and the, and the haze, because the haze is also a problem with optical data. So um, the applications here are, are different depending on the project. So we'll decide through the project definition, okay, probably our data scientists are going to tell us, yeah, it's most likely that we're going to need SAR data uh, as opposed to optical. Um, in terms of hyperspectral, so I am a non-technical person, but from what I understand, um, is you can see way more with hyperspectral than than the normal spectral uh, band. So you get extra bands that you get access to. And that's pretty cool because we can see more. We can see extra through, if you take picture A in, in a normal version and then you've got the same picture taken with hyperspectral, we can see much more stuff through it. And I don't need to know more than that. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what, uh, what's what I like about my job is I can push the boundaries without knowing where these boundaries are.
Yeah, that's great. And I appreciate appreciate I'm asking some fairly technical questions for someone with a non-technical background, but I think it's good to sort of set the scene of what Earth observation is sort of really like, apart from just, you know, the weather on the BBC that maybe uh, a lot of us are familiar with or, you know, uh, yeah, Google Earth or Google Maps. To be um, fair, you know, weather on BBC also uses radar data. I mean, the, the, the clouds that they see is not just optical, they use radar also for that, I think. So that's quite quite interesting. Cool. So you spoke, you spoke about uh, support in mind Scotland. Who are some of your other your other like main clients that um, that you work with at AstroSat? So we work with um, local governments. Governments. Uh, we also work with uh, the mining sector. I can't give names. Um, we also work with the energy sector again. And we we had a project with uh, Eon in the, in the, in Great Britain to help with uh, fuel poverty. Some a topic that if you're living in the UK you will know a lot about, and pretty much if you live around the world these days, you'll know about fuel poverty. So when you spend more than 10% of your income on heating your house, but the reverse is also doable, cooling down your house. If you spend more money than you should on cooling down your house, you could be fuel poor. So so yeah, so we did that with them. Um, so yeah, local government, governments, uh, energy companies, um, we're still trying to find our feet in the agriculture sector. We have good leads, um, more to come on that. And also... Currently, we have a project running with the NHS, which is a pretty cool client to have. Great. And so, so how do you sort of typical? I know, I guess there isn't a typical project to AstroSat, um, but uh, if a if a client comes to you, what is the sort of typical workflow? Um, you say you use space data, you also use other types of data. Is it a case of them? You know, you entering entering a discussion, maybe them setting some requirements about what they want, and then you looking for those different sources, um, not just space. So, what like what other sources would you maybe use depending on the client? So, so yeah, so the the typical workflow. Um, so, client X uh, comes over to us through I don't know a website, a recommendation, or a conference that we've been to, and and they've spoken to us, and they'll say to us, okay. Uh, Okay, AstroSat, uh, it'll be usually myself and my colleagues, uh, Arun or Steve, that will be on, on the initial calls to say, okay, AstroSat, here's um, here's our problem statement. Um, we would like to, I don't know, I'm going to make something up. Um, we would like to measure the impact of our butter production facility, I don't know, um, on the environment and therefore um, to prove our sustainability claims, et cetera, et cetera. So from that, we'll just build uh, a set of initial requirements and then we'll dig a little bit more, um, figuring out where the space element is. There's not always a need for the space element, but this is what we bring to the table. Sometimes a problem, you know, it's best used with a focus on ground data. So I call ground data some stuff that's acquired uh, by the company themselves, or you can get data from governments or agencies to, to to that you can then fuse into the satellite data. And then the satellite data becomes just a complement. Uh, sometimes projects could stand on their own with just ground data, but having the, the temporal and, the, and the, the large areas the satellite cover, I mean, what I like to say is that with satellite data, you can go back in time because you can do that, you can really go back in time, I think from really usable products, I'd say, I'll say the late 90s, I think starts to be really, really interesting in terms of access to data. So, I mean, time travel is it's a thing, we can do it. 
and we're doing it through EO and, and satellite data. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, so that that's the that's the typical workflow. And after so this is why we will then delegate a, a business analyst who's going to be then associated with the client, get all the requirements out from them. And this is doesn't need to be technical knowledge. You just need to know how to read people and understand read between the lines, uh, understand what people think. Uh, and then translate that to developers and data scientists in order to say to them, yeah, this this is what the client wants, uh, and you'll have typical methodologies uh, to to get that data and then to translate it to the developers. Well, we we are an agile company, so um, Scrum is a is a is a really cool setup. Um, but the way to write the requirements between the clients and the developers or the data scientists is you know. It's pretty straightforward, um, but yeah. So that's that's the typical workflow, really. And when it comes to to space data, do you, do you get sort of a lot of uh, other data raw from satellites? Are they do you get them processed by the by the satellite uh, owner or provider? Um, you, you suggested that you have to do some of the processing yourself. Uh, what's that sort of share like? So we like to process everything ourselves. Um, that's where we bring some of the intelligence. Um, so we'll, there's a lot of talk right now in the community about in-space processing, which I find interesting. Um, I mean, I, I get the idea of, of bringing the package solution back down on Earth because it's, it will be probably lighter to transport back. Makes sense. Um, but who's doing the processing? Um, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm guessing everybody's competent um, and, and everybody's going to be competent doing it. But you're relying on a, a third party to do the processing for you. I mean, I guess it's quite straightforward and and the data can't lie. But I don't like handing over a part of the process to somebody else just for fear of some something getting missed out. So I like the fact that we do all our processing ourselves. Okay, it costs a lot of money in terms of processing power, in terms of computers and all that. We've got... Uh, an IBM supercomputer in our church, in our office. So, um, so, so yeah, we've got one of them to do the hardware for us, but we also use uh, user aspects, um, uh, AWS, and that costs a bit of cash. Um, so I can, I can, I can get this, um, but yeah, we, we build our algorithms uh, and, and, and do our processes ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's what we do. I think the phrase uh, "we have a supercomputer in our church" is <laughs> is is absolutely brilliant. It feels like uh, just just twenty twenty two in a nutshell, the mixture of old and new. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a great office to to be where, although it gets cold in the winter. Um, it's yeah, it's a, well, it's not often you can say you work in a church and 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 you're working for a science company. You can't have to say you put a, a supercomputer in a church either. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll move. We'll step back from AstroSat a bit and, and maybe focus on your on your personal um, career journey or your path into into your current role. Um, how did you first become interested in space? So my interest in space started about three three and a half years ago, where when um, a recruitment company got in touch with me and said. Hi, Andrew. Um, these guys, uh, AstroSat, are looking for somebody with your profile. Would you be interested in having a chat with them? And I said to the recruiter, tell me what they do. 
and he said something space something something and then I heard space I was like yeah I'm in okay let's let's go and have a chat and that's as simple as it went um, but from then on I got pretty much hooked um, space is pretty freaking great and there's a lot of it and there's a lot of different things you can do it's not just rockets it's so much more than rockets and and satellites and all that there's a million other things that are amazing uh, in space Awesome. And what's your, your background then? Am I right in thinking you, I think you told me at NSSC, I think you're half French. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I am half French, half Scottish, born and bred in France, in Paris. Uh, I moved to Scotland in 2005. Um, so my curriculum, I didn't go to university. Uh, I studied, so I did um, something called the Baccalauréat Général uh, in literature in France. Uh, so that's the non-scientific side of the world that you address when you speak to to, to literature um, students, usually, especially in the, in in France, because you get segmented in, in in high school in France really early on. Um, so if you told me when I was eighteen and I was doing my high high school exams that I was going to work in space at some stage in my career, I'd have laughed at you, and I never all my friends would have also laughed at you at me. Anyway, um, so yeah, so anyway. So I did that. Um, I then, after I graduated, I was supposed to be a fireman. Uh, that didn't happen because I injured myself um, and I was declared unfit for military service. That's what the Paris Fire Brigade is, is made of. So I then got my mother. Uh, my mother pushed me to do something uh, of my life and I studied media and communication in Paris. Um, uh, that's not part of the university. It was a uh, something. Uh, I don't know how to translate that in English. The best way I can do it is um, it's a sandwich formation where you do part-time school and part-time work. So I was in placement at the SNCF, the uh, Train National Train Company of France, for two years, where I basically studied how to do press releases, or journalistic work, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I actually did that um, for for real. Um, and then I did a year at Total, the oil and gas company, where I, because of my natural skills of speaking English, I did a lot of the international communications that they did, uh, press releases for exploration production and so on. And so in 2005, my contract ran out at Total. And so they didn't feel like renewing it, fools. Uh, <laughs> so I then uh, I then decided if if you don't, if you don't study, you should travel. So my first stop was going to be Scotland. Then I wanted to go to Canada, New Zealand, Australia, maybe South Africa, and then come back to, to, to France. But I stopped in Scotland because it's pretty cool. Um, and I, I worked in, in um, hospitality for a bit. I was a pub manager for a couple of years, for more than that, actually, uh, for three, four years. And then I lost my job because of a fire in the, in the pub and the restaurant above us. I got my redundant. And then I said to myself, okay, time to, time to pull your finger out and start having a real career. And this organization called Credosoft was looking for a French speaking trainer. So I was already made um, speaking French and learning software. Um, I, I just had to learn on, on the go. But what I didn't know is in that particular role was pretty intense. They did uh, risk-based inspection software, um, basically figuring out when something's going to blow and then change it in over before it does. 
Uh, and I was out of my depth most of the time, which is cool. I like that. Uh, talking to corrosion engineers, mechanical engineers um, about, you know, the end of life of material, carbon steel, all that kind of stuff. Um, about microbiological degradation on metals and all that. It was, blew my mind. And I, I loved it. It was really great. And, and then I got the job at, uh, after about 10 years working for them and going from the French-speaking speaking trainer to operations manager. I... Uh, I got the job at uh, AstroSat, and here I am now. I'm talking to you. Great, quite a whirlwind. I think uh, first pub manager, definitely. We've had um, we've had on on preparing for launch, which is uh, which is great. <laughs> um, um, what, what skills do you think that you acquired in in uh, was it CreateSoft you said? Yeah, CreateSoft. Um, CreateSoft, sorry, CreateSoft. Um, or in your former or in your previous roles that uh, made you such a suitable candidate for uh for a uh, AstroScale and AstroSat, sorry. And what was the, f- the first role you were going into in AstroSat? So, so what skills? Um, I think what we are doing right now is one of my core skills. I can talk, <laughs> and also I can get people to talk. Also, um, and that that comes in handy when you're doing project management type work. Um, elicitation of requirements, figuring out what the client needs. Uh, in the pub, it's quite straightforward. You need a pint. Okay, that works. Uh, you need a cocktail. Okay, I can do that. Um, but also reading people. I got that through through my own personal experience, uh, talking to people, working in a pub, working um, at in, the, in media and so on, trying to read what people are thinking and then what are they really thinking, you know, um, that that's really important to, to, to read between the lines and say, okay, what, when you mean you want a green background on this piece of software, what you really mean is not just green, right? Here's a bunch of examples. And then just try to figure out what they actually want. Um, and that, I think that's the soft skills are really important in, in every job, regardless of what you're doing. Even if you're, if, if you think of yourself as a hardcore developer that doesn't like to speak to people at some stage, you're going to have to speak to somebody, not just the machine. So at some stage, that's going to be needed. You might not like it, but you're going to have to do it. Um, but yeah, soft skills is important. And then through time and experience at uh, my previous role and this role, um, it's basically having an open mind and understanding what you can and cannot do. Uh, so I don't code, well, very little, um, but I know how much I can request from my developers and reading understanding the skills of your developers or your data scientists, who's more suited for what, how much can I push on that person? And when should I pair, for example, a junior with a senior, what bits that I should pair them together? Because there are moments where the junior just is going to be, um, it's not going to be beneficial for anybody that the junior is there, but it will be beneficial at other stages. So understanding when these stages are is really important for the growth of the junior and the growth of the senior at the same time while you're managing the project um, and managing the delivery that you've got. So yeah, um, that's, that's I think, an answer to your question, right? Yeah, very good, very good, thank you. Um, let's talk a bit about some of the, I think, other projects you've been involved with um, from what I've seen on your LinkedIn and from uh, AstroSat. So I've seen you write a lot about Poverty Plus. Can you explain what that is for our listeners? 
Yeah, so but that's what I mentioned earlier. The, um, if you're a charity, you can request um, access to Poverty Plus. Poverty Plus is a subset from our original project that we did with ESA for COVID-19, where we did all this social work for the, uh, against, the, against the pandemic or to see what the results of the pandemic were on social economic impact and so on. So we pulled out a bunch of data sets. Um, I think fuel poverty is one of them. Transfer poverty, I think, is one of them. Social isolation index is also one of them. Uh, I can't remember all of them, but yeah, if you're a charity, you can you can get it for free. But yeah, I also volunteer uh, in in uh, Space Scotland Environmental Task Force. I think that yeah, that must be on my LinkedIn also. Um, and this is pretty cool actually. I, I really like doing that because it bring so the organisation Space Scotland brings everybody together. Uh, and when I say everybody, all the different areas of the sector come together and discuss big topics, big issues. And we published recently what we think, and we're pretty sure about it, is the first space sustainability roadmap. And that was, that was a pretty great effort from everybody. So whoever is going to be listening that's in the task force, uh, kudos to us. We are awesome. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so d- doing that also is really helpful because it just changes the pace a little bit and it broadens the kind of setup so i encourage anybody who's listening that okay you might be busy at your work but you know doing something extra will also help you have a bigger general context kind of kind of setup so you can really take a step back and and learn from others what they're doing and then that might bring ideas to you also in your business can you go into the details about what that space sustainability roadmap entails or what the, the purpose of it is obviously we'll link it in the description if anyone wants to read it and we yeah. know how big and, and uh how exciting the space industry in scotland is at the moment but can you explain what the your roadmap uh, sets out to do so so the roadmap we've basically broken down into a bunch of work packages so we are all volunteers just to, to just remind about that um so we've broken it down in, in several work packages and it's it's about showing showing the capability of scotland and the uk uh, to deliver on sustainability claims and to to be the the leaders in sustainability. So we looked at the different aspects. So manufacture of satellites, for example, manufacture of anything that goes into space. How sustainable are you doing it? Uh, how sustainably are you doing it? And then how are you bringing it back down? Are you bringing it back down? Is what are your plans and so on? And then for launchers what kind of fuel are you using what could you do better and just the start is about thinking about these things to start with and then the subsequent items on the roadmap are actioning these things so it's, it's all great publishing paper but paper is also good for other stuff that we're not going to go into detail um but actions speak much louder than a piece of paper so that's what we're doing so we're also working on um, figuring out a sort of kite mark to say your your organization is sustainable in our in, in our eyes and we are looking at setting up some sort of criteria in order to deliver that kite mark um so this is a, this is this is quite quite important to us um so we're looking at all the aspects and then my my bit was actually more in the background where because we were all, they were all talking about, you know, launch and launch sites and how do we do things sustainably and all that. And and people were talking about their claims and so on. And I said, it's all well and good to be able to talk about your claims, but prove it to me. Prove to me that your sustainability claim is correct. 
And who better than Earth Observation to do that? And, you know, and which is great also in Space Scotland is everybody leaves their business cards at the door. So we did a, a sort of roundtable session where we invited all the Scottish companies, um, I can't remember, yeah, all the Scottish companies that did Earth Observation to a, a, a sort of roundtable conference, deep dive type thing where we also talk to other sectors because what I really like that we can do is reach other sectors because it's all well and good patting ourselves on the back saying, hey, we're good, blah, blah. But we need to we need to sell ourselves way better to other sectors. So when oil and gas comes over and says, what are you doing for sustainability? And we can say, well, this is what we're doing. If you want to copy, then you can copy. There's no problem because we're all in this together. And this, we're not doing this for us. We're doing it for everybody. Um, and here are the lessons that we learned. And here's our credentials because we checked ourselves with our own systems. So we, I mean, we've got we've got it all. If you think about it, we can, and not just in Scotland, and you can more more generally, but in Scotland, we're privileged that we've got academia, really top universities, really great. Um, we've got um, launch sites. We have launchers, we have satellite manufacturers, we have Earth Observation. I mean, if we don't go full circle with all these people, I mean, we are idiots. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, so we can do everything ourselves and proving ourselves to ourselves is great, but then we can then show that use case to other sectors across the world and say, this is this is what we are looking into. So last thing that I'm going to say about this, because it's a big tunnel that I'm doing right here, is we were actually a couple of weeks ago talking to the Australian Space Agency who were asking us questions about how we came about the, the roadmap, how we're doing it and so on, what kind of lessons that we'd learned and so on. And we're more, happy, more than happy to share this because we're all in this together. Because if we ruin the planet in Australia, we're ruining it the same way as we're ruining it here in, in the UK. So, yeah. Great. Very interesting. Um, speaking about sort of the accountability aspect of, of the roadmap, um, so Space Scotland, is that like a volunteer organization of people within the industry? Yeah. So the industry people volunteer up their time and effort, um, spend a few hours, uh, uh, much, however much you can spend, and you will spend it on it. Um, and then I think uh, I think there are, there's a few people that are, uh, salaried at Space Scotland, um, but I'm not exactly sure because because I'm only part of the environmental task force. I don't have to worry about the rest of it. I'm just focused on my area. Um, but but yeah, I think there's a, there's a bunch of people that are salaried and 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 they're doing a great job just getting everybody together, applying for for more money in order to do this this work because the the roadmap production well needed to have some 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 money behind it. So we got some funds in order to do this. I think. Uh, there are some UK space agency money that came into that to help us out. Uh, the guys at Astro Agency produced the uh, produced the roadmap with Optimat, and they did a really, really great job. Moving on to another project uh, or sort of a AstroSat activity, I've seen that seemed quite interesting. You spoke again on LinkedIn about a trip to Uganda. I think you did a few months ago. Can you tell us what that was about? Yeah, of course. I was um, so Uganda is a really, really great place. I'll start with that. It's, it's uh, freaking awesome, and the people there are just just gems. Um, yeah, kudos to my uh, my driver. Uh, yeah, he was he was just he was just amazing. Um, so um, so yeah, and and the University of Makerere also they were they were really bloody fantastic. They're really amazing. Um, so kudos to them, and kudos to the our partner organization Accent. So project. Um, so. Uh, the project's called H2Orb, 
it's an ESA project that we did, and it was to figure a way to help fish farmers on Lake Victoria make the most of their fish farm um, using, obviously, EO uh, in order to stop fish kill or stop or reduce drastically fish kill. And, yeah, it was it was a tough trip in some times because um, it's something that I brought back to my colleagues and some friends over here is, um, you know, we we are all we we all see poverty here in Great Britain and and in Europe and the USA and we see it in one way. And who am I to say that our poverty is bigger than the other ones? But I'm telling you, like poverty down in in Africa, I've seen pretty horrendous stuff, and we should do so much better. And thanks to this project, there's a chance that we can bring more money because if they can produce more fish. They will bring more money to their families and all that, and lift uh, lift themselves out of out of poverty. So what we did is we used satellite data to monitor things like uh, algae bloom, um, monitor things like um, vegetation patches on water, uh, the drift of these vegetation patches, um, water surface temperature because it's really important when you're feeding fish because I can cannot remember the temperature that you need to feed fish. Uh, but there's a specific set of temperatures that if you go below or above that temperature and that set temperatures, you shouldn't feed your fish. It's just wastage. Um, And yeah, so we use satellite data for all this. And we also had in-situ sensors. That's our partner uh, who basically dipped uh, sensors in water to measure pH, um, uh, oxygen levels. And we also can measure oxygen levels through through satellite data. Um, But having the ground truthing element and this is where it's cool is, you know, how earlier I talked about time travel. Um, well, by doing the in-situ ground truthing and coupling it with the satellite data, you can now predict the future. Uh, so using uh, machine learning, uh, you can start pr- plugging numbers together and then trying to predict the future a few days ahead. So you can warn people to say, hey, you might have an incident here where there, there's, I don't know, the temperature's going to rise in the next few days, weather forecasting, straightforward, or the dissolved, the, the CDOM, which is the, the um, it is organic matter in water, uh, is getting higher and higher, and that leads to less oxygen in the water. Therefore, your fish will die, take them out of the water, sell them now. Um, so so being able to do that saves a lot of, of, of that. Because as... Yeah, normality is fucking insane. Sorry, again, stroke swearing. Um, normality is something that is different for everybody. But talking to the guys on site and, and the ladies on site that are fish farmers, and they're okay losing 50, 45% of their production. Um, no, that's that's not okay. That is not okay. And they say to me, yeah, but we've, it's been like this for years and years. And I said to them, maybe this still doesn't make it okay um, to, to to lose fish. So think about it in a different way. And I used, I used an example, which I'm not going to use it, uh, on, on this call because it's a bit sensitive. But if you replaced fish with something else that is really close to your to you, very, very important to you, would you be okay to lose 40% or, or 50% or even 20 or 10% of that what is really dear to you? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't accept that. That's not normal. And so working with Macareri University, with the students there, explaining that to them, I think was a really interesting thing because we were able to start the seeds of that message that says, okay, 
it's not not right to lose that that amount of fish. So yeah, that was a really great, really great experience. I went there twice. Um, really good fun. And I do recommend visiting Uganda. Um, because it's yeah, it's it's really a great place. That's that's really interesting. How how are you getting or planning to? I'm not sure what sort of stage of the process this project's at. But how would you get? Um, would you get the data to these fish farms then? I'm get, I'm understanding right that they're fish farms, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a, a bunch of fish farms that we are working with, and there's a there's a there's a cooperative that could not even afford thermometers, so they would routinely lose eighty percent of their fish through through not knowing what is happening. And so we've got partner organizations on on the ground, fish farms, uh, large ones, small ones, co-ops. Um, and so where we are in the project, we've finished the feasibility. We've sent all our documentation to ESA. There's a lot of documentation. Um, and and we are now looking into how do we go from feasibility to a full-grown project. Um, so we're, we're working on this. I don't know when we'll, we'll have an answer to that, um, but we should have that in the next few months to see if slash when we're going ahead, I really want to go ahead because as I mentioned earlier, it's a good way to bring more money in country and, uh, and less fish kill is better. Um, so yeah. Um, what was your other question? How, how would you get the space data to those fish farmers? The space ah, data right. or the data in general, but you know. So, so yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, so this is, this is part of the soft, um, soft, uh, uh skills, talking to people, understanding how, how they're going to be working and then seeing it on site, how they're going to work. These guys, they've got smartphones, first of all. Um, you know, the assumption that as an organization that we jumped in, we, the assumption was they'll be using old Nokia 3310s type thing. It's not the case. They all have smartphones. And, okay, connection's not great. So you, we start bringing that data down as different roles that we identify who needs what. So... The manager of the fish farm, he'll need or she'll need a dashboard of some sort that says, okay, um, this is the temperature here. This is the prediction. I have a computer. I can work on that using using my, my desktop. That's fine. But the people on the ground that actually go to the fish cages, they don't need a computer. They just need a text message that says, hey, um, oxygen levels are going down pretty much uh, you pretty much want to take the fish out in the next couple of days or else. Um, so that's the different levels of access to the data is figuring out what do people need and what's the use case for that. They don't need to know about the clever algorithms that are in the background predicting the algae bloom in two weeks' time. They just need to know, go and fix it. Um, but the manager, they can plan better for resources and so on using that data because in two weeks' time when the algae bloom turns up or this drift island turns up, then they can commandeer a boat or, or like mission a boat out to deal with it. So that's a, an extra expense, but they'll save money from no fish kill. So that's that. Great. That's really interesting to hear about some of those uh, those sort of alternative maybe um, or, or slightly different projects that uh, you yourself and uh, Ashasat are involved in. Just to go wrapping up, um, what, what excites you the most about um, maybe your field of earth observation? Um, you spoke about the technical side, so hyperspectral imaging. So maybe you don't want to take it um, any further down that side of things um, than that. But maybe on the sort of commercial side, what does the, the landscape look like? Um, you know, what companies are doing, new projects they're getting involved in? So um, 
so the future is really exciting. There's so much stuff going on. That's the first thing. So much more tech going out. So much, uh, so much more players in the commercial area. So more access to more data. Is data is the new oil. So that's that's that really. Um, <laughs> and you know, there's there's so much money to be made through data. Um, what's next in terms of what we're doing? So I've been working on something. So having a chat with my boss. Um, a few couple of years ago, uh, before the pandemic, he said to me, Andrew, I want us to fix homelessness through space data. Uh, uh, that was before Christmas. And I was like, oh, crap, how do we do that? Okay, I'm just going to pack up and leave. I have no idea how we can do that. And they, he was more thinking about the reactive aspect of it. And as I was, I challenged myself to say, okay, let's see what we can do. I'm looking into a preventive methodologies because we can read the future, right? Um, and so I've managed to get into one of our projects, the NHS project that we're doing down south, um, an aspect about dealing with where communities are more at risk of falling into homelessness. So I think to us anyway, that social social aspect of space data, not so much to prevent environmental catastrophes. We already do that and, and everybody does it and everybody does it very well and we do it very well. But it's not just that. And so my favorite challenge is to apply space to stuff that is not really, you know, it's out there kind of thing. Um, so so, so that's what the future is about. But we, we are still carrying on doing the work in mining and, and the work that we're doing in environment and the, the task force and all that, all the, all the work that we're already doing. We're going to carry on doing that. Um, I think, though, that this Earth Observation is definitely where there is value in this in this space ecosystem. Um, I think there needs to be a little bit more investment done in it. Um, I think there needs to be a little bit more maturity in the organizations that are, that are in our celebration of them, but maturity comes with time. But also, you shouldn't over... So pricing is a big problem for, for Earth Observation. I know some organizations that price up far too much for really simple stuff acquiring optical imagery. I've heard of companies, so I'm not in them names, um, it's not us, that have been reselling Sentinel-2 images, reselling free stuff. That's not right. And surely ESA wouldn't be happy about it. But uh, you're reselling it, okay, for whatever money, it doesn't matter, you're reselling free stuff. That That's not right. And if you're if you're selling up too much, some some programs and projects that are delivered using satellite data they're far too expensive it's not worth that uh, i mean I, looking at the, the the figures myself i mean it's not it's worth a lot of money but it's not worth millions of and millions and millions of money that's spent on this so people are currently overpricing stuff and that's not right and at some stage that bubble is going to blow and a lot of people are going to be in trouble uh hopefully it's not going to blow but I fear that that's going to be the case um, in the next few years, and only only the toughest will be able to survive this. Um, so 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 yeah, uh, it's a, it's a stark statement, but uh, I don't know. It, it feels that we are about to see a shift of some sort, and I don't know where it's going to land. We'll keep on the lookout then. Um... You've got a very unique uh, pathway into the the space sector. I think it's safe to say. 
um, with quite an, an interesting skill set. What advice do you have for students looking to get into the space sector? You mentioned soft skills. Um, and indeed, is there a place for, for our listeners maybe at AstroSat? Uh, so I didn't catch the end uh, of your question. Uh, I just bro- said, um, apart from that bit of uh, self-promo, but um, is there a place for our listeners or for people wanting to join the space sector in AstroSat? Okay, so, right. So first thing um, addressed to students out there that are, are or, or young graduates that, that are looking into getting into the space sector, go for it. Go for it. Um, whatever your skills are, there is a need for your skill in the space sector. If you're an artist, go and join us. If you're a designer, come and join us. We are we are software companies. We need designers all the time to show off our beautiful stuff. Um, and we need these UX designers to tell us what is the best user experience for our software. So UX, UI design, for sure. Artists, we need artist impression for stuff always, even you're building a rocket. I want an artist impression of that. It looks fucking great. Um, again, swearing. I'm going to put some cash in the pot somewhere. Um, so, so yeah, soft skills also are really important. We need salespeople in the space sector. We don't sell ourselves to outside of the space sector. So, yeah, for sure. Um, and obviously, data science developers, um, clever people in general. You don't have to be a scientist to be clever. I mean, I don't consider myself a clever, but I've managed okay for myself. So, so yeah. Um, in terms of AstroSat uh, recruitment path, um, there's just have a look at our website. We we post our options every now and again. I'm pretty sure that we're going to be starting a year recruiting more people. Uh, I really need more people anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I'm always talking to my boss about getting more people in. So so yeah, so. Hopefully, we'll have something up uh, up and running in, in January, maybe, for for our diverse set of roles. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, but one of one of my advice would be to follow, I think it's um, Space Careers. Space Careers is a really great site. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities in there. And and I, th- I think UKSED's a part of, of that um, site. And uh, you guys have done a really good job at it. And it's really great to see that. My advice would be, open up to just not just young graduates every every space roles would be would be great but focusing on, on young graduates and so on works fine um and you did you've been doing a really great job uh, at it um and so so yeah what other advice do you have for for students looking to grow their network uh, so so what what i'd say is um get your name out there go and meet people um basically if, if you're interested in, in an organization They'll have info emails, so drop them an email. Maybe, maybe even without your CV, you don't need to send your CV. Just say, "Hey, I'm interested in in this organization. Um, are there any roles?" But also, I think equally importantly is getting yourself out there. So going to conferences, attending, because uh, uh, I think students and young people have discounts, and that's that's pretty great. And being able to get out there, show yourself, and and explain your skill to somebody that's at the stand um, makes a lot of sense. And you know, it makes it more personal next time you talk to them through email or, or telephone calls and so on. So yeah, definitely get out there and, and, and meet people. Great. Well, I think, uh, I think that's, that's everything for today. So thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew. No worries. It was my pleasure. Um, yeah. And, and thanks for having me. No problem. Anytime. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please follow the podcast if you want to find out when we release new episodes and leave us a rating or comment 
or send us a message on any of the UK said social media pages to let us know what you think about the show. Join us again next time for more insights from professionals. Until then, stay safe. Preparing for Launch is UK said's official podcast. It's hosted by me, Isaac Alatrio, produced by Seb Ravinsky and Louise Whiteman, with support from Sana Mughal.